If you'd open your Bibles to Philippians 4, um, we are going to be finishing off the book already. feels like we just got started, and uh, now we're wrapping it up this morning. So it'll be Philippians 4, 10 through 20. Uh, it's very common uh, for Christians, well-meaning Christians, to latch on to a favorite Bible verse and to quote it often and to frequently use it out of context, to use it in a way that's contrary to its um, intended meaning. In fact, some passages almost become better known for their misuse than for their accurate use. And uh, I'll give you a couple examples of some of the usual suspects here. Uh, first of all, we'll say this one, Matthew eighteen twenty, which goes like this, For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. And oftentimes, this passage is used for somebody to say, well, listen, two or three of us are here. God is in our midst. Uh, as though there was a minimum quota for God to show up, you know. And I'll tell you this, that, that's not at all what that passage means. I have felt the presence of the Lord, and whether I feel it or not, he is with me when I'm alone on a fly fishing stream or up in my office or mowing the lawn or here by myself at church. He is with me there. And he is with you wherever you're alone. So we don't need to get two or three together for God to show up. What this passage is actually saying, it's in the context of confrontation and discipline. And the point of it is, when two or three of you agree that a matter of sin or trespass has occurred, and you go to the individual, you go with my presence and my authority. But that's not often how it's used. Here's another one. This one's kind of funny. This, takes, this is in Genesis 31. It says this, May the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. And this is the one that you, and if you're wearing this on a little charm right now, just tuck it in so you're not ashamed. This is that little charm. You get like half of a broken heart and you wear one and your girlfriend wears the other one when you're separated. And oh, may the Lord watch between us. We love each other. It's rainbows and unicorns and it's sweet. Here's the next verse. If you mistreat my daughters or take any wives beside my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. The context of this is Laban to his son-in-law, Jacob. And what he's doing is this. Now, I think if you have one of these charms, hang on to it. I'm going to give you a better use for it. I think this is something that fathers who have teenage daughters ought to have and give out to would-be suitors. You want to date my daughter? You're going to wear this. And I want you to know. Or no. Yeah, I got to work on that. That's what the charm is for. That would be a more accurate use. All right, here's another one. This one's going to hurt. It's going to sting. It's a favorite. I know. Jeremiah 29, 11. Mm, ouch. You got to go there, Pastor. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Oh, it's delightful. Put it on a graduation cake, right? Oh, for gradu- graduates, this is the hope you want to give to them, this encouragement. What's the context? It's discipline again. This is God telling Judah, destroying the temple, removing his presence from them, and sending them off to Babylonian exile. 
I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. It's all true, but you're going to 70 years of time out first. So just think about that before you put it on a graduation cake, right? <laughs> and today we have one from our passage in Philippians, one of those commonly misused passages. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is the athlete's favorite verse, right? Christian athletes everywhere. We'll start with Tim Tebow and his eye black, right? Football player. We used to have it right on the eye black. Philippians 4, or Philippians and 4.13. My favorite Christian athlete, Steph Curry, writes it on his shoes. And actually, Under Armour agreed to put out a pair of sneakers that has it embedded right in the shoe itself. And I really like Steph Curry. But I want to say, Steph, you're using it wrong, bro. You know, you're out of context here. And the point behind this passage is not, I can knock down my jumper. I, I can go through the offensive line. I can throw a touchdown. It's, this is not the point of the passage. It's not, I am so strong because God is in me. This is not the testosterone verse. As we'll see from the context the point of this passage is an even greater feat. It's learning to be content. I can do all things, even be content, through Christ who strengthens me. And so that's what we're, we're looking at this morning. I'll remind you, that, so Paul's closing out his letter to the Philippians here. At the, this letter is basically, right here at the end, this is basically a thank you for the financial gift that they have given to him. And he's a little cagey about it. He's really grateful for the gift, but he doesn't want to give them a sense that he was dependent upon it. So he's careful in what he says. But I'll remind you that he is writing this from prison, which I think bolsters his argument about being content. So conventional wisdom on contentment. Uh, we'll go to Warren Buffett on this one. Warren Buffett on contentment, uber millionaire, billionaire, says this, the secret to happiness is lowering expectations. Okay, Warren, uh, I'm going I'm to call you out on that one. Paul's got it better here. The secret to contentment is not just lowering expectations, but rather it is found in our vital union with Christ. It's not that he is first in our life. It's not that he is a feature in our life. It's that Christ is central in our life. That he has a pervading influence of everything in our life. Every relationship, every task, every job, everything we think we have, everything we think we own. That Christ is central and pervades every corner and sphere of our life. Contentment is realized increasingly as Christ becomes central. Verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last... You renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and <clears throat> every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Ah. 
So again, this is Paul's thank you. He's trying to do two things at once. He's trying to show that he's really appreciative for the gift, but not dependent upon it. And so we kind of get this almost halting, uh, cautious uh, thank you here. One of the things that I find really encouraging about this passage is that Paul conveys that contentment can be learned. That is good news. Because I don't enter this world with contentment. And I'm, I'll be very honest with you. Contentment is something I struggle with. I can get a case of the wants really badly and fix on something and perseverate on it and research it and look at it on multiple websites and from every angle and read all the reviews and get just want the right one and I can really lock on to something. In fact, my wife gives me a hard time. She starts quoting Wind of the, Will- Wind of the Willows. Uh, do you guys know this, this book, this little children's novel? This is about Toad, Toad and the Wild Ride, right? There's this great quote about, I've seen that look in his eye. I know him from of old when he gets fixated on something. So some people's spouses quote scripture to them. Amy quotes, you know, literature at me. I can get a case of the wants. And I find this encouraging because contentment can be learned. Um, And it seems to me that discontentment is just like this dark cloud that looms really over our culture. I think it's really heavy uh, these days, especially in this age of social media where we all see a whole lot more of each other's lives in a context that's not relational. I just get a keyhole into your life. And um, none of us puts our low moments on social media. You know, I go fishing, I show you my best fish. I don't have a picture of me laying face down in the stream when I fell and lost my glasses, right? And I think maybe now more than any time in history, this discontentment just hovers over many of us. This is a particularly dangerous time uh, for that, for me, Hunting season, these are the Sundays when the guys walk up to me with their phone out, and I'm like, oh no, what are you going to show me, dude? And there it is, a picture of the 60-inch moose they just took. 60, I don't have one that big. Man. So then I defend my discontentment with thoughts like, I bet that thing tastes terrible. (laughs) All ruddy and grainy, nasty, who would want to eat that? Or another fellow walks up, picture of a full curl doll sheep. Oh, my hunter's dream. And if only my knees would allow me to do that. All right, I'll look at your picture. Now I've got to defend myself again. Hmm, the body on it's just okay. It's a little broomed on one side. I've seen better, right? Or this one's killer. It's January. Your friends are posting pictures from Hawaii. They're on vacation. (laughs) There should be a rule, right? There should be a setting on Facebook where you can say, except no vacation pictures in January from warm places. So so then I got to defend my discontentment again. Looks hot. Probably getting sunburnt. Sand, bah, that gets everywhere. Who needs that, right? Maybe it's not such a funny one, though. Maybe it really hurts. It's somebody's anniversary picture. They're celebrating a milestone. Good for them. Meanwhile, you're still hoping for a godly spouse. 
Heck, you're just, you're just hoping for a good date to give you hope, right? You just take a good date right now. They got a new car. Good for them. Great. Yours is in the shop. Shouldn't have got a Chrysler, you know? <laughs> Pastor tried to tell you. Someone got a new job. Awesome. That's great for you. I hope my boss doesn't fall in a hole, right? You're not loving where you work. Or somebody has a retirement announcement. Man, oh, they got there. The golden age, the golden days. Yes, that looks awesome. Retirement. I still have 20 years to go. And I did the math. As of today, I have 490 elder meetings to attend. I wish I hadn't done the math. There's just a lot in our present world that serves up bait for us for jealousy and envy and discontentment, especially in a world of our social media where it just is put in our face. Discontentment also seems to be just human nature at birth. Think about kids and some of the first words that they learn. For how many of our kids, in the first 10 words, was the word mine? Right? My daughter, Eleanor, who's not here to defend herself, first word, not mom, not dad, more. <laughs> so would-be suitors look out, right? More. Okay. I think one of the first sins of children everywhere, in the nursery, desiring that toy that you have, taking it. And the second sin in most nurseries is that other kid hitting the first kid, right? <laughs> Give it back. I think a lack of contentment seems present even in the original sin of Adam and Eve, who were not content to be human, to live within the boundaries and the limitations that God wisely gave to them and lovingly gave to them. Not content, wanting to be like God, knowing good and evil. Their discontentment was the prelude to their sin. So I would say one of the devil's original tools is sowing seeds of discontentment. I like what Proverbs has to say. There's this great passage here. It's a good starting point. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. It says, Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal, and so dishonor the name of my God. You could call this uh, little passage the prayer to be middle class, right? That's almost what it sounds like. Just give me the middle, where I know I depend upon you, but not so much that it hurts. And there's some conventional wisdom here. That's the nature of Proverbs. Um, I, I think, but I think accurately, the writer of the proverb describes the traps are for us on both ends, whether we're really wealthy or whether we have little. But those of you who are middle class know that the traps are in the middle too, right? They're everywhere across the spectrum. Contentment is there calling out for everyone. So I think Paul improves upon this, not just saying, let me manage my earthly and worldly things, but rather let me manage my heart. Let me find contentment that has not come out of my circumstances that transcends that. 
Discontentment is a common condition because of sin. But Paul wants us to know that we can learn contentment and it will have no bearing on, on what's happening in our earthly circumstances. It transcends that. Jesus teaches this same kind of thing as well in Luke 12, 15. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And so what we find here, what Paul and Jesus are teaching us is that contentment can be found in any and all circumstances. In other words, a truly content person is able to locate their satisfaction whether they have much or whether they have little. Circumstances are inconsequential to contentment. That's a big statement I've just made. And I think the, the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we believe that? Can I really find contentment in any and every situation, irregardless? Think about it. What if your house was taken from you? What if your car went into the shop for another month waiting for parts to arrive? What if your financial situation blew up? Some calamity came, you didn't see it coming, and it's wiped you out. What if your job was removed? Something, a job you really like, you take a lot of satisfaction in it, and it's gone. All of your possessions, gone. Or what if it's your kids? Your kids are not doing as well as their kids are doing at this moment. Or what if there's incredible tension in your marriage? What would it take to produce discontentment in you? And I think most of us can say it'd be pretty easy to identify some life circumstances that we know would set us up for raging discontentment. Paul gives us the secret to finding it no matter what's going on in our life. It is a Christ-centered life. That is the secret to contentment. When Christ is central in our life, our vital union with Jesus is what produces contentment. It's not found in managing our outward circumstances. It's not found in lowering our expectations. But true contentment comes when our love for God supersedes all other loves. So again, that's an easy thing to say. It's easy to say. It just rolls off the tongue. It's a harder thing to live. Uh, let's look at the situation of Job. We can see this flesh out, right? Interesting conversation between God and Satan. I have a lot of theological questions about this passage I'm about to read, but here we go. This is Job 1.6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it, which ought to be a warning to all of us. Um, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? I want to stop there. I don't like that part. <laughs> well, you're looking to mess with somebody. Here's a guy. What about this fella? I really don't like that. That's just my own gripe. I have no answer for you just now, but there's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand. Strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, 
Very well then. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. While Satan asks a very provocative question, doesn't he? Does Job trust you for nothing? That's a question for us, I think, to consider. Not that we take our leads from Satan, but nevertheless, why do we trust the Lord? Why are we in relationship with him? Why are we in the family of God? Is it out of love for him or is it out of love for the stuff that he gives? And between Job and his wife, one is exposed for loving God no matter what and the other is exposed for loving God for what he can give. When Job's wife comes to him and says, just curse God and die. She shows why she's in relationship with the Lord because he is a means to an end. Just a tool, just a technique, a technology for her to get what she really wants, which shows that she sees herself as God and all of these other things to bring her pleasure. God is just a tool. That's what's ultimately revealed here. But contentment means we find our security in the Lord and ultimately in our identity with him. Our satisfaction resides in him. Our true mission in life is his mission. Our goals are his goals. To the degree that we grow in love and affection for Jesus, we will find contentment or we will not. So contentment can be learned. That's good news because I don't think we come into this world with it. It can be experienced whether we have little or whether we have much. The secret to contentment is a life centered upon Christ where he is our true love and our supreme affection. We move on to our second part here. Verse 14. Yet it was good of you to share my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the manner of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. Here we see his caution, right? I'm not, it's not, I'm not after the stuff. I love your heart. I'm not after the stuff. He's trying to walk that line. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to the Lord. And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So our second main point here that we would focus on is that it is more blessed to give than receive. I think that's what captures these verses. It's this principle that Jesus teaches. It's more blessed to give than receive. Where at first Paul's a little cautious about receiving their gift and not wanting to come across as though he needed or though he was eager for it. He is absolutely confident and unreserved in his assertion that it is for their good to give. No hesitation in making that point. And that is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith. That it is that we help our hearts by being generous, by being charitable, by being willing to share, by holding things loosely. We help our hearts and our affections for the Lord when we live that way. Um, Paul, again, teaches this in the, in the book to Titus, his letter to Titus, uh, Titus 6.10. Um, 
or excuse me, 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many, with many griefs. And I'll tell you what, I experienced this yesterday firsthand. It doesn't say that money is evil, right? That's a tool. It's the love of it that's wrong. The pursuit of it, the desiring of it. The love of money above other things. That's the root of evil. And how I experienced this yesterday firsthand, I was at the gym working out. And I did a long workout, a couple hours, come back to the locker room. I'm sorry for the TMI here, but I decided I'm going to go to the shower. But before I left for the shower, I noticed that there was this young man who seemed to be eyeballing my things. And I was a little uncomfortable, and so I picked up a few more things than I normally do and put them in the locker and closed the door. And if only I had locked the door. I didn't. Five minutes in the shower, I'm back, and I just had that feeling like, I wonder. I reached in the pocket of my jeans, and my wallet was gone. I pick up my phone to see if it's still there. I look at it, and I have uh, two messages from Wells Fargo. Do you recognize this transaction and this transaction? No, no, no. And now I'm in the race of trying to cancel cards and all of the things. What was at the root of that? The love of money. The discontentment with his situation. He saw what I had, and he wanted it, and he took it. It was the heart issue that was a prelude to the sin of action. And discontentment was at the root. And now I'm dealing with a level of discontentment. Right? Because now I've got, I mean, you want to talk about feeling helpless. I got no driver's license. I can't go buy myself a consoling coffee. <laughs> I can't go to the bank. It's closed on Saturdays. I can't go to the ATM to get cash. Honey, <laughs> I didn't have a contingency plan for this. And now for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be watching my credit. I'm going to be waiting for new cards to show up. I'm going to go have to go get a new driver's license. And, oh, and I hate that. I hate that disruption. And it was birthed in a lack of contentment and a longing for what someone else has and a love of money. But Paul teaches here about giving and how this helps our heart. Our charitable gifts are given, we find, primarily to the Lord. Primarily to the Lord. Look at all of the descriptions here. A fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. I think an interesting question we can ask ourselves here or two are, who's the beneficiary and who's the real recipient? And I think Paul is teaching that God is actually the real recipient. The earthly institution, the earthly individual, the organization to whom we give something, they benefit from it. But the real recipient is God himself. And Jesus teaches the same thing in Matthew 25. He says this, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you. 
And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. God is the real recipient of our gifts and our giving gestures. Secondly here, the Lord provides for and replenishes the giver. Now I need to be careful about this, and I hope your spidey senses went up and you're like, wait a minute, where's it going? Because too many evangelists and prosperity gospel preachers have used this kind of thing to say, give, give, because you'll become wealthy. You'll be better off. Let it flow, let it flow. You'll, you'll do better, right? And that's silly. I am not saying that if you give, God will give you more so you can be wealthy. I am saying, though, that God is a very good investor. And he invests in his kingdom. And if you are one who invests in his kingdom, I believe God channels resources through you. I'm not saying you should see giving as a means to get wealthy. That's foolish. You'll be very disappointed. But if you have a heart to support kingdom work, wherever that is, and it takes a measure of faith to do so, God promises to resource the giver who invests in his work. That's something I say confidently to you. Whatever is ultimately from his hand and passes wisely through our hand, he is blessed and he replenishes. Uh, we see this again in the parable of the talents, right? Again, Matthew 25, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things, so I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. So, <clears throat> if supporting the kingdom of God is your heart's desire, and you give wisely towards that and generously towards that, we're assured God is blessed, and he generously meets the needs of those who do so. So, in conclusion here, I have learned, this is the key, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not about knocking down a jump shot or throwing a touchdown or feats of strength. It's about the feat of contentment. I can be content in any and all circumstances with Christ's help. And I can learn to be generous with Christ's help. And we do this by making Christ central in our lives, not first, not a feature, not an add-on, but the pervading influence in all that we do. Let's pray. Father, somewhere around town is a young man who committed a crime. He stole from me he did so out of a discontent heart, out of a love of money, perhaps out of poverty, but discontentment nonetheless. I pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit you would work upon his conscience, that you would convict him of sin, so that he would repent and find our gracious God who forgives any and every sin. And I pray that he might know the joy of having a life centered upon you, of being your child, of not measuring his life by what he has or doesn't have, but by measuring it, knowing that he is in vital union with you and therefore rich beyond measure. 
I pray, Lord, that you would have your way in my heart. This was not an accident or unforeseen or just my lapse of judgment, but even this from your hand. Would you teach me about my own lack of contentment in this? Lord, you are good. You are good all the time. You are always giving us good gifts and drawing us to you. Teach us to be content in any and all circumstances. Teach us, Lord, to cherish Christ and to live for him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.